Thank you. Boy, this is, I feel like I'm trapped up here. I feel like I'm in like a cage. So good morning, church. Good to see you guys. Welcome. First day of October. Is that crazy or what? Where did September go? Yeah, uh, I'm thankful for David Kosan. Is David here this morning? He's second service. All right. He's part of the hangover crowd. Um, he, uh, he spoke last week, brought the word. I am grateful for uh, church leaders who are word-centered, Jesus-focused. And so I just applaud David for bringing the word last week. Hopefully you were encouraged by that. Because you know where your pastor was at the Dallas Cowboys game. Yeah. So no, let's just get this straight. I, I understood October to be Pastor Appreciation Month, not Pastor Humiliation Month. Like, what, what happened, you guys? Like, did you set this up, too? Did, not only did you send your pastor to the Cowboys game, but somehow you arranged that they would lose? Good job. Good job, you guys. So, you know, nothing like a little humble pie, right? No one saw that loss coming. No one saw that coming. And, uh, but here's the good news. I didn't, I didn't give up hope on life. I did not go, why do I just want to continue living after that loss? There was a day when I bought too much into sports, right? I, I found too much of my identity in whether my team would win or lose. Has anyone ever been there before? You know, uh, being a lifelong Cowboys fan, uh, that's a long story. I won't tell you how I got there, but uh, I lived in Dallas. My dad's from Dallas. But uh, there came a point, and even Lino and I were talking about this. Didn't, wasn't there a point when, like, if your team was up, you're up. If they're down, you're down. And then you just get older and go, there's so much more to live for. Can I get an amen for somebody? And if you haven't arrived there and you like sports and maybe you're too much into sports, you'll get there one day because your team will let you down. But here's the good news. I have discovered something that will never let you down. Matter of fact, I've discovered someone who will never let you down. He always wins. His name is Jesus. How's that sound? God draws close to the humble, but he, he's resistant to the proud. And you know what? When you come to know Christ and you give up and surrender... There's nothing greater in the world than that. And we meet a man who gives a testimony to that. His name's Paul. Uh, we get to find out a little bit more of his testimony in Acts 26. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you would, uh, do, definitely all kidding aside from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I had a great experience with my boys at the Cowboys game. Uh, it was about 80% Cowboys fans at the Cardinals Stadium. Uh, and let me just tell you, Cardinals came out with a game plan. They won. Cowboys came in sleeping, thinking this is a guarantee. And uh, I'll tell you right now, in football, any sports, there's no guarantee. But with Jesus, there's always a guarantee. If you come to know him, there's eternal life. There's eternal hope. There's eternal joy forever for those who believe in him. Can I get an amen from that one? So Acts 26, you're going to hear this testimony from a guy named Paul who was once Saul. He was one of the greatest persecutors of the early church. He was a Christian hater, uh, perhaps one of the most wicked, one of the most vilest, one of the most sinful people you will ever meet in history. And yet he delivers a, a testimony that, uh, that is sure to kind of give us evidence that God can change anyone's heart and anyone's life. We turn to Acts 26 this morning, and there's things here that I think we can learn from his testimony in his life that I want us to kind of navigate together. But Acts 26 is where we're going to be. Let's read verses 9 through 18, and then I'm going to go back and comment on three aspects of Paul's life as he shares it here. Number one, a confession. Number two, his conversion. And number three is a commission. And so we'll talk about each of those in detail. But Acts 26, starting at verse 9, so he's already been talking to King Agrippa, 
who uh, comes from a lineage of Christian-hating rulers. So Agrippa's right there with him. Uh, Festus is there. He's a governor. Uh, there's a lot of royalty in the room. There's a lot of pomp and, and, and circumstance, a lot of pageantry, a lot of external importance. But the one who's in chain, this is the one who's a prisoner, the one who is the, the lowest of, of, of importance in the room is actually the most elevated because he's the only one that has Jesus. And, and with all of these leaders listening, he gets to share Christ with them. And there's perhaps nothing more powerful than a changed life to give a testimony like Paul's giving. Um, look at what he says here as he continues talking to King Agrippa, Festus, everyone in the room. Verse 9, chapter 26 of Acts. So then, I thought to myself, so this is just after he talked about the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is not something Paul was confronted, confronted with. Every human being in history is confronted with Christ being risen from the dead. If Christ has not been risen, then our faith is in vain. If Christ has not been risen, then what are we doing? Everyone has to answer the question, not only who is Jesus, but did he do what he said he was going to do? And this is the greatest apologetic in the entire world. So Paul says, I was confronted with this. Verse 9, so then I thought to myself, because of the resurrection of Christ, this is him talking B.C., before Christ, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I voted for that. I affirmed killing believers. And, and as I punished them often in all synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme their God. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even into foreign territories. He hated the movement of the church so much that it was boundless as far as his anger and his rage. And he left Jerusalem in order to find as many as he could wherever he could. This is, a, this is, a, this is an enraged person. Verse 12. And while thus engaged on this journey to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest, so he was commissioned by the priests to continue this rampage against the church. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me also saw it. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in a Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So I love it. He's confronted with two realities at this moment. One is the res resurrection of Christ. He's alive. And number two, the unity Christ has with his people because any act of harm done to his people is an act of harm done to him. Verse 16, but arise and stand on your feet. I'm not going to keep you on the ground forever, right? You are humbled, you are changed, but I want you to get up. 
because there's a job to do. This purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness. Circle those two words. You are a servant and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from Jewish people and from Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And don't miss verse 18, because this verse is packed with so many great truths. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Three things we're going to navigate. The first is this, Paul's confession, verses 9, 10, 11. This guy was on a campaign of terror and radically opposed to the church. This is a man who is angry, and he is not afraid to share his backstory. What I love about Paul is that he is very honest about who he was before Christ. And I want you to know that I don't know where you're at with Christ. I hope that everyone in this room is in Christ, that, they, that you believe. But I can't assume that. But I want you to know that no matter where you're at with Jesus, there's nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to your life, B.C. days, before Christ. God can use your B.C. experiences, those times in your life, as a testimony. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's connecting with Agrippa. He's establishing credibility with this king to say, I know what it's like to hate Jesus. You come from a lineage, your great-grandfather, Herod the Great, killed all the little babies born in, in the region when Christ was born. I, I get that. And your great-uncle, who I, he, Paul probably worked with, who killed James in Acts chapter 12. I get the hostility, and I get the, the anger and the hatred. And so he's establishing credibility with this king. and says, I, I, know, I know what it's like. To hate Jesus and hate the church. I can relate with where you're at. And so he establishes two things with the king. There's a deep rebellion that he admits. There's a deep rebellion where Paul looks back on his life and he, and he, and look at verse nine. I mean, this is where, let me just tell you, rebellion exists in all of our hearts. We are born rebels to God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins before God. There's none who can do righteous, no, not one. Don't think you're all good because you're not. I'm here. See, that's why I'm here. You come to church to be beaten down a little bit, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh no, is this going to be scary? It's not going to be scary. Because here's what the Bible establishes. All of, our filth, all of our good works are but filthy rags before a holy God. All of us fall short before him who is holy because we are sinful. We are unrighteous. He is righteous. But praise God for grace. There's the good news. God does for us what we can never do for ourselves. But we have to have an honest assessment of our hearts and be like, we're all rebellious. I have been rebellious. Paul has been rebellious. Look how much his rebellion has, has done to him. And it starts with verse 9. Look at, so then I thought to myself, the moment you start thinking to yourself is the moment you're in trouble. At no point did a religious man like Saul think, what does God think? This is the beginning of rebellion. Thinking that you 
have it figured out, and you negate God's influence and impact on your life. I thought to myself, be careful, ladies and gentlemen, when you think to yourself. Stop thinking to yourself and start asking yourself, what does God think? Because I, can I just be totally loving as a pastor? I don't care what you think. I care what God thinks. And you know what? You, th- you want me to tell you what God thinks, and I want you to tell me what God thinks. Because the moment I start thinking to myself is the moment my soul starts doing this spiral into destruction. Why you downcast, O oh my soul? Stop looking here. Hope in God. That's what the psalmist says. Paul is thinking to himself, what do I need to do to destroy this movement? And I'm going to tell you right now, Paul's rebellion, B.C., before Christ, write down Acts chapter 8. He says, I was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That's Acts 8. Acts 9 breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is a man who thought he was enlightened, but he was really enraged. And this is the the weird nature of our rebellion and thinking to ourselves, if we divorce God from our lives, if we leave God out, the more enlightened we become in our own philosophies and estimations, what actually happens is we become more enraged. More enlightenment without God doesn't lead to peace. More enlightenment without God leads to more enragement. And Paul couldn't slake his rageful thirst. So he could only breathe murder. He could only breathe hostility. And I'm going to tell you something about Paul. He was a wholehearted man. He didn't do anything halfway. Whatever he did, he did it intensely. Hence his conversion to Christ. This guy's radical now for Jesus. He was radical against Christ, but when you see the heart of a man like Paul, now he's radical for Christ. Is that not amazing or what? So here's this wholehearted man who did everything he did with a sense of madness. He was furious against Jesus of Nazareth. He was furious against this idea of the resurrection. He was furious against this church. And it says he even went to persecute him beyond Jerusalem into strange cities. And, and what I love about this is that Luke, who is a doctor, tells us that Paul was so enraged the language really says this his nostrils would flare his neck veins would bulge his face would beat red and this is a picture of a person who is so enraged that they appear out of their minds and i wonder if dr luke being the doctor just said paul can i check your blood pressure like have you been so enraged where it's like uh you need to sit down and settle down We need to keep your anger in check because there's not a more striking picture of anger than with what Paul was doing to the early church. Why was he so enraged? Because he was suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We we wonder with this world why there's so much anger and so much hostility and so much violence and and just so much sin. You want to know why? Because every single person suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. We don't want to submit to God. There's this thing called pride that says, my good works 
should appease my chaotic soul. My respectable character, what you think about me, what the community says about me, all that ought to take care of uh, everything that's going on as far as the war in my soul. Can I just tell you right now, whenever you lean upon rules, whenever you lean upon religion, whenever you lean upon duty, whenever you lean upon works or the law, it brings nothing but more enragement. See, Paul, he prided himself in his religious observations. He prided himself in like, I go to church on Sunday and Monday and I sing songs. I listen to the Christian radio and I read all the Christian books. And yet you can do all that thing, all those things without having a heart for God. And some of the most enraged, murderous people exist in the church. Because there's a God who says, I don't want your religious observance. I want your heart. Blessed are the people who are broken and contrite before a holy God and realize we can do nothing. And yet the grace and the mercy is that he has done it all. See, the deep rebellion is broken by this divine sovereignty who interrupts Paul. See, Paul, any puzzle, puzzle, anyone like puzzles out there? See, here's the thing. I know, it's like if you're over the age of 50, you like puzzles. Uh, Younger people are like, what are puzzles, right? My dad does puzzles, so... But here's what I know about puzzles. And I can't even tell you the last time I did a puzzle, right? I do puzzles where it's like six pieces or less. Those are my kind of puzzles. But there's some that are like 10,000 pieces, right? Here's what you need for a puzzle. You need a box stop, a box top to tell you what the picture looks like. What if you were given 10,000 puzzle pieces but not given a picture of what the puzzle looks like? That was Paul's problem. He had all the pieces being raised a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. He had all the puzzle pieces, but he didn't know how they fit together until Christ stepped in because Christ is the puzzle box top. Christ is the picture, and it says when you take all the pieces of life, it will not make sense without him. Until you see him, the puzzle does not make sense even though we have all the pieces. No wonder people are so mad and murderous and enraged we have all the pieces and yet we are missing the box top and paul says in second corinthians 3 write it down for those who god awakens spiritually he removes the veil so we're no longer blind he removes that veil so now we can see him who is the answer to all of life's mysteries. Has God removed the veil in your hearts, in your minds? Trusting Jesus opens our eyes to behold the things that we would never understand apart from him. Our, our, our confusion and our questions ought to drive us to God and say, what do you think? Because thinking to ourselves and trying to figure life out according to our own philosophies will not help. So Paul just says to Agrippa in this, this audience, I'm not proud of where I've come from, but I don't also want to just, just totally throw it off the table. God was working in me. As vile as I was, I was working in me. So there's not only de- deep rebellion, but there's also deep regret for what he, does, he has done to the church. 
And I wonder if that's what compelled him just to work so, so feverishly for God. Let me give you a couple passages of of his deep regret because Paul wrote about this. And again, I don't think he was he was motivated by guilt or shame, but I think he had a healthy understanding of what he had done against the church, and he so wanted to be compelled to do something for the church. Look at these verses. First uh, Corinthians 15, verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Galatians chapter 1, look what he says. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. In another place, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, I, I, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Again, this is the, the greatest influence for Christ the world has ever seen. And look at his self-assessment. He was a man who was humbled greatly, but used mightily. Oh, God draws close to the humble hearted and yet is resistant to the proud. Ladies and gentlemen, God wants to remove your pride. He wants to remove all your accomplishments. He wants to remove you so that he alone is front and center and gets all the glory at the end of the day. Amen. This is his confession. This is who I was. And I want you to know every one of us has a story. And no story is greater than anyone else's. I think sometimes the church celebrates the the more horrendous testimony more than the one that's just like, I don't know, I was saved in my bedroom when I was 15. That was my story. And then I hear someone like, I was a murderer and I was a thief. And they're like, get that guy up front and have him share his testimony. Let me just tell you right now, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins and made alive in Christ. There's your testimony. We were all blind that now we see. There's our testimony, right? Conversion experiences vary, but all the conversion experiences give glory to God because he's done the unthinkable. Amen. Don't think of someone's testimony as more powerful than yours. You were once a rebel, but now you're a child in Christ Jesus. Come on, you guys, give it up. That is so good. Point number two, which leads us to our second point, Paul's conversion. So now he's captured by the truth and is now radically interrupted in his life. And, And I mean radical by the fact that he was breathing murder, he was breathing threats, he was going to kill more believers, And who interrupts him on the road to Damascus? Jesus himself. Look at verses 12, 13, 14. While I was engaged in this journey to Damascus, with the the permission slip from the religious authorities, they're like, "We're we're signing off on what you need to do because we like what you're doing. Keep throwing them into prison. Keep dragging them from their, keep on dragging them from their houses. Keep on authenticating the murder of these people. Keep on making them blaspheme. Christ interrupts him. And Paul the terrorist turns into Paul the evangelist. 180 degree turn in this man's life. And what a dramatic testimony. He has. He's sharing this news of this transformation literally with some of his former employees. Think about the fact that Paul is telling of this experience to the people he used to work for. See, you guys, he was the hunter for these priests. Now he's hunted by the priests because they don't like what he's saying. 
And I'm going to tell you right now that perhaps his changed life is one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection of Christ because Paul had nothing to gain to leave his former life. He had nothing to gain. As a matter of fact, he had nothing to benefit from this change in his life. And if he had any social, uh, selfish motive whatsoever by breaking ranks with these religious leaders, he could have solved this problem long ago by recanting his faith in Christ. But this man was truly changed. He was truly transformed. And it all happened because why? Christ interrupted his life. Spiritual truth had been revealed to his heart. Now, I want you to see something in Paul's encounter with Christ on this Damascus Road, which we find originally in Acts 9. Paul repeats his conversion experience three times in the book of Acts. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. But here's the thing. He's traveling with this entourage. Everyone sees, or everyone's blinded by the light, but not everyone is hearing the truth, hearing the words of Christ. They all hear a murmur. Christ, uh, Paul's the only one that hears the words of Jesus. Spiritual truth has to be spiritually revealed. Write that down. When God interrupts a life, it's entirely God's work and only God can get the glory. Sometimes I think we, we, we own a little bit too, respons too much responsibility in, in making sure people believe. You can't make anyone believe. Someone in your life right now, you may think is far from God. Let me just tell you, there's no one further from God than Paul. And yet God stepped in and had spiritual truth revealed to his heart and changed this man's heart from rebellion to repentance. And this is the way God works. When God works in a heart, he speaks truth and that truth cannot be ignored. So here is Paul, changed. And there's two things that happen when Jesus steps into his life. And this is something for us as far as application. Number one, the condition of our hearts change and the course of our life changes. And let's talk about this because it's interesting that Jesus uses a phrase with Paul that we need to unpack because I know when we read it just moments ago, we're like, what are the goads? Remember what Jesus says here in this he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, this is an agrarian society. And what I mean by agrarian is these are men and women that were familiar with working the land. They were familiar with agriculture. They were familiar with livestock. What a goad was and is, because they still use it today, was a pointed stick that went to a, a, a misbehaving animal and poked it on the back of its leg to steer it in a right direction. And when that animal wanted to do its own thing, the one who's controlling the master of that animal would poke it with the stick in order to do what the master wanted, even though the animal wanted to do its own thing, it was being controlled by a greater force. So what Jesus says to Paul is, You've been kicking against my poking and prodding for, for too long. Paul, you know the truth. And again, you're suppressing it. You know Jesus is alive. You know the testimony of the church. If you think about what Paul was confronted with, two specific goads, if you want them, the faithful witness of the church while he's persecuting them, and then the martyrdom of Stephen in chapter 8 of Acts. 
Because it says that Paul stood supervising the, mar- the death of Stephen. And as Stephen is reciting the redemption account from the entire Old Testament to this crowd, Paul is sitting there approving of them killing him, but he's hearing the truth of his ancestors and forefathers. And you better believe his conscience was being pricked. You better believe that Paul was hearing truth and continuing to ignore it. Why? Because he didn't want to accept what the master was telling him even in those moments. God had to step in and change the condition of Paul's heart. How different Paul became once he was confronted with the risen Savior. Think about it. Here is a man who is controlled by anger and rage and violence, and now 180, he's controlled by the Holy Spirit. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a miracle. What is there in your life that you could say, that's a miracle of God and what he's done? Has he brought forth a transformation like that in your hearts? Because this is what Jesus does. Now, I'm not going to say it's overnight. I'm not going to tell you it's instantaneous. But I will say, once you are in Christ, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And great is he to perfect the work he began in you until the day of Christ Jesus. So here's the thing. Are you changing more into the image of Christ? Are you growing more in Christ's likeness? Do you resemble Christ more than you did six months ago, a year ago, five years ago? Because this is what the revealed truth does to a repentant heart. It changes you. So this man has been radically changed. And again, not everyone in his entourage was changed, right? Only Paul. And that's what God does. He'll, he'll, he'll pinpoint somebody that he's going to set his affection upon. And he's going to change Saul. Out of that whole party, he changed one person. And that was Saul himself. But not only is there a condition of our hearts that's changed, there's the course of our lives. Because how many of us, even in Christ continue to almost insist before God, go ahead, God, and bless my plans. Have you ever been at fault for going to God with a list of all the things you want to do? And you say, God, bless these, please. And God goes, that's not the way you approach me. You approach me with a blank piece of paper and let me fill it out for you. How many of you are guilty of this? See, God goads us because he wants us to do what he wants us to do, and he's not necessarily going to bless you for what you want to do. And there's two things that he wants us to do that are evident in the life of Paul that I think are true for us. Number one, you are now a servant of Christ. And number two, you are now a witness to Jesus. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that now your life is not your own. You've been set apart from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You've been set apart by him and for him. And now your identity, every single believer in this room, I am a servant of Jesus. What does that look like when it comes to your day-to-day, week-to-week life? What does that look like on, you know, some of you are like, I'm a servant of Jesus on Sundays from 9 to 10.30. Can I just tell you right now, you don't understand what it means to be a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ doesn't mean you have a pastor in front of your name. A servant of Christ is one who has been interrupted by Jesus, brought down to their lowest place of humility so that you realize that you are nothing and he is everything. You accept the gift of eternal life in Christ and now your only song day to day is, how can I serve you? 
How can I serve you? And one of the greatest ways you can serve your King of kings and Lord of lords is by being a witness to him. Jesus says, you're mine? Declare the beauty of our relationship. Tell others of what I've done for you. All I know is that I was once blind, but now I see that was the testimony of a blind man in John chapter 9. And so when we think about the course of our lives, the moment you start thinking this is about you, you are mistaken. There was a guy who wrote a book years ago called Purpose Driven Life, and, 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 and it starts like, I forgot what he says. He says, you know, this is not about you. And I go, amen. This is not about you. If you're a child of the king today, you're a servant of his, and you're a witness of his, and that is the most complete and most fulfilling identity you can adopt for your lives. What does it mean to serve God in your family? Serve Christ in your, in your workplace? And again, you don't need to do this at church, and you don't need to do it on a mission field. You do it every single day with every breathing, waking moment you have. And perhaps the greatest way you serve the King of kings and Lord lords is just being a witness to his grace, his mercy, and his kindness and compassion. Because there's another picture in the agrarian system of the, there's the goad, but also Jesus, you know, he talks about the yoke. Can I just tell you right now? Stop kicking against the goad and embrace the yoke. <laughs> Write down yoke. What was a yoke? A yoke was a wooden contraption that was attached to two animals, one mature, one immature. The mature animal would have the yoke put upon its head, and it would take the immature, inexperienced animal in the same yoke, and the mature animal would guide the younger, immature animal on the course it needed to live. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Stop kicking against the goads and being the rebellious animal that you are and embrace the life that is attached to me and let me guide you step by step on this journey called life. We need, we need to hear that. Because every single day, you know what I'm tempted by? My kingdom come. My will be done. On earth as it is in my house. And my work. And in my family. And my friendships, right? And God continues to battle down this sense of Scott's kingdom. And Scott's will. And my thoughts and my agenda, and my five-year plan, or my 20-year plan. You know, we all have these things, and yet we ne neglect to think about seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not about you. This is about God. And when you come to know him, and you want his will for your life, when you want his agenda, when you want his kingdom, you can do whatever you want to do. Here, here's the beauty. Sometimes people go, it feels very confined. It feels like there's too many rules. There's too many boundaries. This is why the verse in, in uh, Psalm 37 is so misquoted, right? Uh, Ask the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. How many of you have heard that verse? That's not true. 
stand alone like that. It is only true when it's connected to when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ask whatever you want. He'll, be, he'll do it for you. This is not carte blanche, blank check. You do whatever you want to do. Once you want what he wants, why wouldn't he want to bless your life? Can I take an illustration out of the NFL last weekend? So the only thing that made a Cowboys fan feel better last week was how bad the Dolphins beat the Broncos. <laughs> Anyone know the final score? 70 to 20. But here's what's cool. Second half, the coach of the Dolphins, Mike McDaniel, interesting dude. I like his, I like his spirit went into the stands and had fans call the plays for the second half of the game. Here's the coach who goes, we got this. There's, there's no way we can lose this game. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go into the stands and have all the fans call all the plays in the second half of the game. You know what this is? This is God, excuse the illustration, this is like God saying to his kids, I'm the king. Nothing will thwart my plans. The game's won. Look at the plays. Call whatever you want. Call whatever you want. The plays are his, 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 it's his word. The play is, is his will. There's nothing you can't call from the playbook of God when you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that he's going to go, that's a bad idea. The game is won in Christ, you guys. Victory has been accomplished. We're more than conquerors of him. So God says, you think life in Christ is limiting? It is more freeing than you'd ever imagine. Call whatever play you want. <laughs> Call whatever play you want. Because this game is won. And only those in Christ understand that. And I got an amen from how many people? Amen. That's good. That's good right there. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Whatever the desires of your heart may be, God will give it to you if you want what he wants. See, that's the course of our lives right there. Last point is this, Paul's commission. So he confesses, right, the rebellion, the regret. He, he's converted, God steps in, interrupts radically this man's life. But now there's a commission, and this is really playing off of what we just talked about, the course of our lives. Paul is called to testify, and there's a radical redirection, and that's sometimes what God does. He radically redirects our lives. Look what he says. I'm going to send you. Get up. When God saves you, see, so many times I think salvation is, we focus on what we're saved from, and God wants us to consider what we're saved for. Write those words down, from and for. See, we're just happy to be saved, and that's good. And we can relish, you know, what God has done. But what is God prepared to do? We forget what we're saved for. And this is the commission on all of our lives. I think this is true not only for Paul, but for us. He's a servant of Jesus. He's a witness for him. And there's three things that now define his life. Gospel courage. Gospel confidence and gospel content. Look what he says here in gospel courage. Get up, Paul. <laughs> I've got a job for you. Just so you know, you're going you're gonna to experience opposition from two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. You know what that means? It means everybody. This is how the world was classified back then. Two groups of people, Jews and non-Jews. You're going to experience persecution from them. So here's the courage you need. You go because you need to realize I'm with you. 
You guys realize this? As you go into the world, God is with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. What, cur- what could be greater courage for, for us? Paul wasn't results-oriented, right? His courage didn't come from how effective his ministry was. His courage came from being faithful to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Can I just stop, tell you right now, stop being results-oriented and start being faithful-oriented. You're going to go into the world. Lo, I'm with you till the end of the age. That's what Jesus says to, to the disciples at the end of Matthew 28. Have courage, but also have confidence that I am going to protect you. Notice what he says here. He says, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. So not only am I with you, but I'm going to rescue you. How many times have we seen Paul rescued in the book of Acts? A lot. And let me just tell you, God can deliver and God can rescue. And sometimes he doesn't. He's still good. He's still good. God doesn't always guarantee rescue. And when he doesn't guarantee rescue, guess what he always guarantees? His presence. He may not always deliver, but he's always going to be the deliverer. And if anything, he's delivered us from our sins. So there's this gospel courage, there's this gospel confidence. And then lastly, there's this gospel content. And this is where verse 18 is so powerful. This is the contents of the gospel. Think about this. In one verse, there's four things I've, I've identified here. This is not exhaustive, but I'm going to tell you right now, this is good. In Christ, you have a new understanding. In Christ, you have a new life. In Christ, you have a new identity. And in Christ, you have a new hope. Now, we could just stop right there. Amen. Let's pray and go home, right? But let's unpack this. Let's unpack this. Here are the privileges of the gospel. See, the content, it almost sounds academic, and I don't want to ever be academic. I want it to be like, oh, this is what God has given to us. For example, I just got this in the mail. Thomas, right behind you, there's some socks on a stack of paper. Can you bring that up to me if you would? I just got this in the mail, and I just thought this is a good illustration of of what we have in Christ Jesus. And can I just tell you right now, Thomas Ferraro's birthday today. Happy birthday, birthday, brother. Finally made it to 38. I love you. Thank you. So I got this package in the mail today here at Sozo, and it's from Boys Town Ministry. Are you guys familiar with Boys Town? So uh, they are, I think, in the Midwest, and, and I, I have no connection to Boys Town. Sometimes don't you get just random things in the mail? Now, I tend to, get, uh, being a business owner and a pastor, you know, I got the ministry, got the business, I get, like, pens from companies that want, want my business, right? Oh, put your logo on a pen, and we'll send you a free sample pen. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, this sample package was like none other that I just got today, literally, I just got the mailbox at 7 a.m. this morning. It came with socks, Christmas socks. And I'm thinking to myself, and I did, and I'm just going, and I was laughing with Davey and Kaylee, and like, who sends socks? Not just one pair of socks, but there's two pairs of socks here. And then I looked a little bit further, and I'm like, oh, now there's pens, right? Oh, wait, there's more. Now there's Christmas cards in here, blank Christmas cards, Not one, but two, three, four, five, six, eight Christmas cards. I don't have to go to the store and get Christmas cards this year. And if you get a Christmas card from me, it might be one of those. So you've already seen it. So sorry. But wait, there's more. Now there's return address stamps. Wait, it gets better. Now there's a little package. Christmas gift labels. And I'm like, wait, there's more. Now there's a calendar. (laughs) 
you guys, this is, this is reflective of what we've received as privileges of God's kids. You have no idea what you've got in Christ. You have no idea. You, 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 you unpack it and you're like, this is good. And God goes, oh, it gets better. And let me tell you, God is better than giving you socks and return address labels and a cheesy bird calendar. Now, I know someone out there is like, oh, I want that. Go ahead, take it after second service. But isn't this what God does for his kids? The, when you come to know him, the deeper you go with him, the more amazing privileges we have as his kids. What do we mean by new understanding? You are no longer living in darkness, but now you have the light of life. Think about what Paul says here in verse 18. Open their eyes so that they may move or may turn from darkness to light. Here, here's what John 3 says. Write it down. Look at it later. Later. Men love the darkness rather than the light. And they love the darkness rather than light because in the light their deeds are exposed. But when the light of Christ shines upon your heart and that divine truth is revealed to you, you gladly give up the things that you hid in the darkness thinking that was going to make you happy. Ladies and gentlemen, you were once blind, but now you see in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's the light of the world. He has brought you out of the darkness. You know what the darkness represents is futility, empty, empty philosophy. Men and women trying to figure out life apart from God. Can I just tell you right now, there's no such thing as making sense of life apart from God. The, the darkness is our natural habitat. Let me just tell you something. 2,000 years later, people do not know where to turn still today. People do not know where answers lie. We're just guessing our, ways through, our way through life, right? We don't even know how to analyze problems accurately. We don't even know how to bring a healthy assessment to our relationships. We don't know where we're going. We're utterly blind, groping about, trying to feel our way through this, this life, and there's this lostness that pervades society, and without God, we're lost. I don't care how enlightened you think you are. And just two days ago on the Joe Rogan po podcast, the number one podcast that's listened to by millions of people. Listen to what he says here. Check this out. We're talking about uh, how complex the human mind is and how complex life and society is, but yet there's no real management book. Like there's no real, there's no document that shows you this is the optimal way to exist and these are the pitfalls of existing other ways that, you know, you have these human reward systems built in and they can be hijacked by these various things. And this is the way the human body and the human mind exist optimally. And for whatever reason, there's no real structure that people can follow that's universally agreed upon. You know, like if you, like, say if you're a mechanic, right, and you're working on an engine, like it's, it's, there's very clear documents that show you, like these are the pistons, this is the spark plug, this is the carburetor, if it's not clean, it'll do this, this is the problem with the gas line, and you have to fit it this way and that way, and so you do it all right, and then boom, it starts up and it works, and you can fix things that way, and you can build things that way. We don't really have that for the most complex thing that we're aware of, which is 
human existence. Yeah. This, I, I like his honesty. I don't necessarily agree with everything Rogan talks about. He's got some interesting guests on his show. But that right there, that minute 20 seconds is really where this world is at. We know we should be better. We know that there's something else there. It's not the reward system that he talks about, right? Because that fails us. There's got to be some authoritative manual for life that's going to help us make sense. May I present to you, ladies and gentlemen, the Word of God that claims for itself what Joe's talking about. No other book has the self-attestation, the veracity, the historical support, the archaeological support, the divine fingerprints all over it like the Word of God does. No other book has been so transformative in the, in the age of man. And so somebody needs to get involved in Joe's life and say, Joe, there is a book. There is a manual for living. And the book is supported by the Word who became flesh and not only dwelt among us, but died a death upon a cross, was buried and rose again on the third day. Proving this is true. The resurrection of Christ and the Word of God go hand in hand, telling us that we are lost, but yet we could be found. We no longer have to live in ignorance, ladies and gentlemen. We've been given the mind of Christ. Paul says this. Colossians chapter 3. You have been given the mind of Christ. We are no longer ignorant. Amen, church. And yet, even we as Christians sometimes forsake the mind of Christ. Maybe we listen to too many podcasts. Maybe we watch too many TikTok videos. Do not neglect the infallible, authoritative, divinely inspired Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Word of God is breathed out by Him and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Memorize it. There's a new understanding for those of us in Christ Jesus. God has moved us from blindness to sight. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Joe Rogan. <laughs> right? For they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things. The one who's been awakened and enlivened and enlightened but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have, there it is again, the mind of Christ. And then what Davy referred to in the communion meditation was 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And their case, uh, uh, the God, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. There it is, right? Servants and witnesses. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, right? Creation, Genesis chapter 1, let there be light. 
The greater miracle is not God saying, let there be light on the creation. The greater miracle is God saying, let there be light in the hearts of those that are rebels to the end. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow, has God shined his light in your hearts? Has he given you the mind of Christ? You no longer have to live in ignorance, but now you can live in the light of him whose mind he has given to you. Point number two, new life. Now you're in Christ, you have been given new life, you have been brought out of bondage into freedom. You are no longer living as a child of wrath, but now you are a child of God's grace. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, look what it says here concerning this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ladies and gentlemen, to be forgiven is the quest of all humanity. And I think Paul is saying to Agrippa in this moment, what do you do with your sins, Agrippa? Because I know what's happened to my sins. Jesus has taken them. And he's taken my unrighteousness and he has given me his righteousness. I have new life. Which then leads to point number three, there's a new identity. Once you've been forgiven, God will never leave you or forsake you. He loves you unconditionally to the end. There's this new identity that we have as far as having our sins forgiven. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4. At the end, into chapter 5, verses uh, verses 25 through, who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Write down the word peace in your notes. Ladies and gentlemen, your new identity is one that is now no longer hostile. He has broken down the wall that divided you between yourself and him, your sin. He's taking care of that. There's no longer a wall of animosity. There's no no longer a wall of hostility. You now have peace in Christ. Because why? He's the Prince of Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, your new identity is this. He has given you eternal life, which then leads to a new hope. A hope that will not disappoint. A hope that is not only yours now, but forever. Write down 1 Peter. I don't have it up on the screen, but 1 Peter 1. The hope that we have is an inheritance. He uses the word there in verse 18. That is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, waiting in heaven for you. Ladies and gentlemen, you have new resources as a believer. You are not left empty-handed. You are not left empty-hearted. You are not left empty-minded. All that Christ has is yours. Romans chapter 8. Look at this verse. Verse 17, Romans 8. And if children were heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Everything that belongs to Christ is ours. Can I get an amen from the church? Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, last verse. Look at this one. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For privileges of the gospel understanding life identity hope let me let me just close with an illustration a story a picture here's what paul is saying to us you are imprisoned 
The door was locked. The cell stanky, dark, musty, rats. There's no hope. Here's what Jesus does. Comes, turns on the light, opens the door. Matter of fact, removes the door. Says, come on out. We're going to go stand before the judge. So it's one thing to have the light turned on. It's another thing to have the door removed. It's another thing to have the invitation to come out of the cell. Now you're standing before the judge, and the judge says, someone's paid, you're fine. You are now not guilty. But not only that, he takes off his robe and says, come home with me. There's a meal prepared. There's a room for you, and you're at my home, and you can stay there forever. You went from the most hopeless, despicable person on the planet to the now the most privileged and blessed person in the world because God has delivered you and set you free. And now you're no longer hopeless. Now you are in the Father's family, given all the privileges that all the other kids get. Unlimited, without end. To that, I say, hallelujah. To that, I say, thank you, Jesus. To that, I say, how can I reflect the gift of the privileges I have received from you, O God? And all God's people said. It continues next week. We don't have enough time right now. Next week, we'll continue. What is going to be the response to what Paul has shared? What is your response today to what God has shared with you? Don't ignore it. Act on it. For his glory, you're good. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for today. Thank you for this place, this, this gathering, these people. Lord, the, the things that we have sung about, the things that we have considered when it comes to communion and, and the, the great sacrifice of Christ, the word, Lord, that we hopefully, faithfully have unpacked. Lord, whatever it is that you have brought to our attention, we, we need your help to apply it. We need your help to walk in it. We need your help to, to just continue to guide our steps and direct our hearts and engage our minds so that in all things you are glorified. So that in all things we say your will, not my own. And that somehow through the living we are able to do in you and through you with Christ's help and the Spirit's enablement, Lord, we are able to share of the hope that's in us with all people. May we never be afraid of our testimony, but may we be found faithful to always point to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for Jesus, who is our only hope. Lord, we want to live lives in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. Help us to do that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. Have a great day, guys. Love you. See you soon, all right? Oh, yeah, growth track, last class, number four, today at 1230. Bless. Growth Track Class 4 today at 1230.